See, have you ever wondered, as we were in this series, what someone's name really means? Like, is Bono really that guy's name? Or, or did a, a dad one day look at his little baby, who you know, this little baby pink and precious, this little girl, and say, let's call her pink? Just think of news, especially weathermen and, and weather people, I should say. They're notorious for names that you go, really? Like Amy Freeze? Storm? These are actual names. Storm Field? We had in, in Minnesota for a time, Sunny House? Dallas Rains? So what's in a name? How did they get it? This true story, my wife, Grace, when I was talking about, you know, the whole thing when you're giving birth and stuff... Little known fact, Grace's mother, she was 42 when Grace was born, and um, her aunt, during that process when Grace was being born, said it takes a lot of grace to have a baby. Hence, it takes a lot of grace to live with me. So hence the name. <laughs> so what's in the name? I want to do a little test. See how well you know real names behind these names. And so I'm going to list these names up here. And if you take a look at it, if we had a little card, you could kind of draw the line to which name you think goes to which name. There's a couple Minnesota names in here. But you can kind of see some of these. And if we had a little pen, you could do that. Everybody, do you have the names? You got who is who? But you have a few, right? Okay, well, let's just go to the next one. Because a little help there, Bobby Zimmerman was Bob Dylan, Minnesota boy. Margaret, Mary, Emily, Ann, Hira, Meg Ryan, Karen Johnson, Whoopi Goldberg. Who would have thought that's her name? Um, or this one, Leslie Liz King Jr., President Gerald Ford, Peter Jean Hernandez, Bruno Mars, Francis Gum, everybody, right? Judy Garland, and Paul David Houston Bono, who gets his name because it was the Latin word for good. I think it was Bono, and I can't remember the other word, but it was this idea his friend called him good voice. And Bono stuck. So what about Mary Magdalene? What's in her name? Is Magdalene just her last name? Is it the description of her shady past? Could it be a nickname? And as I was thinking about this, and, and we've been doing this with names, we've been saying kind of what are some characteristics, what are some things that go into this name when you look at this person in the Bible, and you'll find that if, if you were to go through it, here's the word I would use. You can use whatever word you want. You can agree or disagree with me when you do these. Some of you do these in studies later. Um, the word I've chosen is devotion. She will forever be known as the most deeply devoted follower of Jesus. And you may be thinking, well, wait a second. What about Peter, James, John, and the disciples? But you may not realize that Mary Magdalene, is mentioned by name 14 times in the Gospels more than most disciples. And here's how devoted she was. Like the disciples, she gave up everything to literally follow Jesus, which in that day was a, there was a real social stigma of a woman and women following a rabbi. She served without pay and in fact, gave of her money and resources when she followed him. She was last at the cross when Jesus died. She was last at the grave when Jesus was laid. She was first to the tomb the morning Jesus arose. And she was first 
to see Jesus, to hold Jesus, and the first to run back to actually say that she had seen Jesus. Not a report, but seen Jesus. And she has become known to some, as you look at history, as the apostle to the apostles. So what's in the name? The Mary Magdalene's name is Devotion. She was deeply devoted to Jesus. And you'll find when you're deeply devoted to Jesus, there's some things that can happen. Often, that kind of devotion is, is not understood. It's wrongly labeled. And, and that kind of devotion isn't the kind of devotion that is, is merely out of just kind of the task that I'm going to do it and I'm going to do the shoulds. It's, it's out of a deep sense of being compelled by gratefulness. And that kind of devotion is the kind of devotion that will be with you in the thick and the thin. And it's a devotion that we find in Scripture is greatly rewarded. So those are the aspects that I want to share with you, the picture of who Mary Magdalene is. And we're going to look at each one of those in this first one. And you think of Mary Magdalene and what's in the name, and you'll find right away that one of these things you'll find about her, she's been wrongly labeled. And devotion, that happens sometimes. People kind of look at it and go, you know, look at these people. They come to church and they sing these songs and, they, and some are actually raising their hands in the Norwegian. They're wondering, what in the world is that about, right? And you kind of look at that kind of devotion and we, we, we give it name, we, we label it away. That's crazy. My guess is that when you hear the name Mary Magdalene, your thoughts are colored by some incorrect information about who she really is. In fact, her name evokes different images in, the, in, in various people's minds. You may think Mary Magdalene was Mary the prostitute who came into the home of a Pharisee weeping, washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. We find that in Luke 7. Or you may think of Mary Magdalene as the adulterous woman who was thrown at the feet of Jesus in John chapter 8. And some who even associate Mary Magdalene with the Mary of Bethany who came to Jesus before he was to die and, 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 and took that alabaster jar and broke it with his incredibly expensive perfume and anointed his feet for his burial. And while you may equate some of those things and in, 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 in that has happened throughout history, there is not a, really the slightest evidence in the gospel narratives or even in the writings of the early church fathers to back that up does not support those ideas. Mary Magdalene is named 14 times in the gospel and not one of those references support that inter- interpretation. In fact, if you look at Luke, which we'll be looking at this morning, Luke begins his gospel wanting to make clear for people because gospels were, you know, were going around, oral reports were being said, and, and, and he was writing to someone who wanted to know the truth and the veracity and, and, and it was even wondering about the, the way the, the accounts happened. And so here's what Luke says in the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 
And Luke intends to give an orderly account. And, and he does so in Luke chapter 7. And the first time that we read about this woman who goes into the house of the Pharisees, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And I'm not going to go through that story, but Luke shares about the sinful woman who comes into the house. Jesus' feet haven't been washed. She actually anoints his feet with her tears of her, her, from um, gratefulness. And that's in Luke chapter 7. Now, now catch this. You go to Luke chapter 8, verse 1, and now you get the first mention of Mary Magdalene. But he says this, after this, giving an orderly account so you can understand the progression of what's happened. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. This is his second missionary journey. He was an itinerant preacher. So he went in chapter 4 of Luke, and he takes his first, um, as he goes into an area where he brings the kingdom of God, the message. He now, at this point in chapter 8, does another um, evangelistic ministry trip. He says, after this, Jesus traveled from one town and one village to another, and with him were also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And, and Luke was also a medical doctor. He was trained, you would say, the, the best medical schools of his day, kind of like the Harvards of his day. And what's interesting about the fact that he's a medical doctor is the way that he approaches so many of the healings. You get more information from Luke than you do from others because he was interested in it. And it says that they had been cured, which is an interesting thing because it's the word in the Greek is therapeutic. It's where we get the word therapy. It's the idea that these were women who actually had physical ailments and in some cases, I think, mental ailments, which is an interesting thought that if you're not familiar with the Gospels, you may not realize that, that Satan can work through strongholds in our, our mind. He doesn't just have to possess. He can actually oppress and cause thoughts and cause things because those kind of things actually have effects on our bodies and on our minds. And so he says here, seven demons, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Luke purposely separates these two accounts and shares them chronologically so that we can understand this story. And he intentionally states that Mary was the one who is cured with seven of seven evil spirits. And that you'll find a couple different times in scripture whenever she is described. So there's nothing as we go through her life in the biblical records about Mary's family life. It doesn't list her parentage. It, it, it doesn't list any family members, her marital status, her age. It only makes this one suggestion that she had uh, no family obligations and she had enough resources to be able to give to the ministry of Jesus. She was free to follow him and she was free to support him financially. And the name Mary is used 51 times in the New Testament and it comes from the, the, the word Miriam and Mara in the Old Testament and it, it, it connotes the idea of trouble and sorrow so that when, when they go to Mary, the Virgin Mary, She's told that Jesus will bring trouble and sorrow. It's very in line with her name. And it was common, that name was in that day, as they were under oppression as a people. And, and often they would name their children according to the times or things that were going on. So she was named Mary and many were named Mary. But what is interesting about her, she is called the Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. Which is why I asked you, and we said this morning, put your name and your place of birth. Where did you come from? What were your origins? Because Magdala is not some nickname or last name, or is it any sense that refers to a shady past? It is where she came from. It was, in a sense, her 
point of origin. And so they would, because a name would be familiar and common, they would often tag it with Mary of Magdala or Mary of Bethany. And, and it's very similar with Jesus. Jesus is a very common name. You may not realize it, but it's the Greek name Yeshua. And Yeshua in the Old Testament is, is, what, is what the name they would have called Jesus. They, you wouldn't, they wouldn't have been going around saying Jesus. They would have said Yeshua. And Yeshua was very popular because it was named Joshua. So in the same way their marriages were, were filled with a sense of trial and trouble, here is Yeshua's who are being born. And the words Yeshua is the one who saves. And he's called Jesus of where? Nazareth. To distinguish him from all kinds of other Jesuses. So Magdala was a thriving city on the coast of Galilee, just a few miles or so from Capernaum. And it was known to be the... Uh, the um, prime textile place of factories and dye works and it was a very prosperous town at that time with an industry and, and there's guess that she probably was somehow connected to some kind of industry around that that was prosperous whether she was or her family was or whatever lots of archaeological work has been done actually on this city and they, they found in 2009 they, uh, they discovered a synagogue, which is a big deal because there's only one of eight in all Israel. They didn't realize that synagogues. They used to say, well, that might have been something outside of Israel. But now they're in Israel. They find this one in Magdala, and they're now finding some stones and other things of this Magdalene synagogue, which is where she was from, which was where possibly, probably more than likely, Jesus taught. Yet in spite of all this information, perhaps no New Testament personality is more misrepresented than Mary Magdalene. And this mislabeling of Mary as an adulteress or a prostitute or, or whatever begins about four to 500 years after Christ. And it gets actually hammered in around 591 in a message by Pope Gregory I, who was, and I understand this, he was reacting against a bunch of Gnostic um, communities that were writing gospels of Philip and Thomas and even one of Mary. And so he was trying to kind of hold against it. And he, he identifies her in a message with the Mary of chapter 7. But even though, oh, it's really interesting is in, in 1969, in fact, the Catholic Church formally rejected this characterization, said that's not who she is. It's not an easy thing to do to kind of go against what a pope has said. Anyway, even though there is not strong textual support at all for this, the mislabeling continues. And think about how it continues. It continues so often through books and films. Jesus Christ Superstar, right? 1973, when that came out, Last Temptation of Christ, The Passion of Christ even, The Da Vinci Code. In fact, the Vinci Code takes some of the Gnostic gospel things and, and goes further and talks about Mary having a, a, an intimate relationship with Jesus and actually having children, which is completely false. You can do the work on it. Yet deep devotion is often mislabeled, even in our own culture. We just don't get it when someone is sold out to another out of pure love. I don't think we understand someone... And how they can be deeply committed to another person. Because when we see it, we have to come up with some alternative understanding and we label it a certain way. So when you look at, you, you, you look at um, Mary, you, you have to kind of give some other label for it to give some understanding. You look at 
Jonathan and David and, and, and you got to do something about their kind of loyalty and, and, and you look at Paul and, and you go throughout history and Martin Luther, you can, I can tell you person after person, they, it's either sexualized, fictionalized, it's demythologized, it's psychoanalyzed to try and explain it. And if you truly have an authentic life transforming experience with Jesus, don't be surprised if someone around you kind of calls you a bit crazy. Don't be surprised if you come in here and you worship with your heart. You could go right to a, 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 a football game or a baseball game and do the same thing and not be called crazy, right? Don't be surprised if someone's compelled to look for an explanation other than the simple fact that you have fallen in love with someone who is so in love with you. The second thing you see is that not only will you mislabeled and you see this in devotion, but you see also in devotion, the greatest devotion, the most sincere devotion comes because you are, you're just compelled by gratefulness. Although Mary wasn't these other adulterers and the one at the burial, the anointer there, she still is a woman with a past. She knows deeply in her heart the outlandish love of Jesus. She's compelled by gratefulness. Her past was just as dark. And if you've been in a situation where you know um, how far you have been from God and how you have walked away from him or even begin to understand that, yes, you've lived a really good life, but you begin to realize the darkness of your own heart. You can grow up in a church and not do a whole lot of bad things. That's kind of my own testimony in some ways. I didn't realize how bad my good really was. And also you realize it and you start to understand it. You understand what Jesus does in your life and how he begins to change who you are and move into your life. And, and you realize your darkness is really just that you're centered in yourself. And here is a Mary. And we don't know all about it, but Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 says this. After this, Jesus traveled from one town, um, about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Also the same woman who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called the Magdalene, or Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chaza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Just a quick note, it is financial support. One commentator writes this, throughout the New Testament and frequently outside the New Testament, this Greek phrase used here refers specifically to material possessions or economic means. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 21 in the story of the rich young ruler, it is the same exact term Jesus uses when he says, go sell your possessions and give your money to the poor. So this isn't primarily about domestic help. It's about some wealthy women who are coming along to support. And what I want you to note is that Mary Magdalene was a woman with a past. She was a part of the rescue mission of Jesus. That's why it says some women who had been cured of evil spirits and Jesus and Mary specifically who had seven demons that had come out. Luke tells us that some of the women who had been cured with these evil diseases and these or these evil spirits and diseases were a part of his ministry team. And I'm just going to note a couple things for you here. Luke lists a few women, but he begins with Mary. It's interesting. He begins with Mary. You would think, well, wait a second. Isn't the Herod's, you know, Susanna, she would be a bigger deal. He's not doing it by prominence of position as much as he is doing it by priority of leadership. 
he is showing the importance of her is in, in, in the ministry team. Similar to what Luke does in other gospel situations. He talks about Peter, James, and John. Or you'll find as you go through the book of Acts, which he wrote, he'll go along and he'll say Barnabas and Paul. And then at a certain point, he turns to Paul and Barnabas, talks about leadership. Or there's another one that you, you'll hear of, you'll hear of a Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. And then eventually, he's, it's not even hardly long ago, and he starts talking about Priscilla and Aquila. It's, it's the way he orders leadership. The second thing is that Luke identifies her as the Magdalene, the one from Magdala. And then he tells us of her past. She was cured. And, and most commentators will believe that that was some kind of mental illness that had taken place. Because that gives you some kind of idea by, it says, seven demons. And you go, why seven, why not eight? Why isn't any time you talk about demons, you mention how many they're done? One of the reasons was, and I'm sure it may have been an exact number. I, I, I can't say that. All I can say is seven means completeness. It means fullness. It means to the full extent. There is a sense what he's saying is from Mary. She was so incapacitated. She was so fully incapacitated by these spirits that were creating this kind of mental illness that she was, it could have been bedridden ridden, or, 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 or just stuck in a room. I'm not saying she had this, but you, you know, the, the, uh, people with phobias, uh, uh, agoraphobia would be one who can't go outside. Somehow your, your phobia, whatever it is, do some kind of thing that's going on, whether there's some physical stuff, which is really important to understand how the doctors and spiritual all play together. So I'm not saying everything has a spiritual you know, cause or source to it. You need to understand it all. But so often we just go to the physical and don't understand there's a spiritual source to it. The point is simply this. Jesus delivered her. She saved her from the condition she was in. At the mention of her name and the calling to her soul and through her trust and belief she found healing. And these spirits which had created this possession or oppression or stronghold were removed and Mary found herself in a position of just deep gratefulness. Mary owed much As a result, she gave much, she loved much, and she served much. And I want you to catch this. Deeply devoted people are some of the most deeply grateful people in the world. Deeply devoted people are some of the most deeply grateful people in the world. They're compelled by a thankful spirit. For they knew what their life was once and now they know not only what it is now, but all that it will be. And the name Mary of Magdala, I believe should give all of us great hope. And if you are in a place today and you're saying, my life is a mess, my past has been just disqualified me. Mary Magdala would have been one who said, God can't use me. My past has disqualified me and Jesus comes to anybody. No matter how incapacitated, no matter what you've done, and he says, 
I have a purpose for you. The, the voice in your head, the voice in our culture that, that, that throws it away, the, the judgment you hear even from the church at times is not the voice of God. It is straight from the pit of hell. It is, as it says, these demons and these devils that are seeking to keep you from being all that God ever intended you to be. And she just gives you hope. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. I love the vulnerability of Scripture. It doesn't try and hide their warts or anything. It just says, guess what? Things were a mess. Jesus stepped in. They trusted. Jesus did a work and is continuing to do a work, and they're following him. And they're giving, and they're loving, and they're, they're serving. Because they know how much they owe him. For his love. You know, people with a past understand the depth of their past. And because of that, they are compelled by gratefulness. In loving and serving God, it's for me, I have to remind myself, it is not about ought or should. Uh, you know, when I get up in the morning, there are, just like all the rest of you, there are times you go, oh. and I have to come back to the reason that I'm doing this is because I have experienced the life-changing power of God and the hope of God in my life and I just want others to know that. It's not a duty. I don't want to share my faith out of, out of a sense of obligation. It is because of how much he's loved me. Just think about that. Just think about how crummy that must feel if you move to a place of duty and you get stuck in that place. How many remember the, the, the rescue of those Thailand soccer team boys, right? Twelve of them. It was incredible. I mean, the whole story. You read the whole thing. You watch the whole thing. And maybe some of you were kind of just praying and, and trying to see what's happening. They go all these little things. Or, you know, they go to get them. One guy, I believe it was a Thai Navy SEAL, lost his life. Can you imagine later, just in your mind, think about this. Here they are, they've been rescued, they're so thrilled, they've hugged all these people who have rescued them. They've never really been able to hug the guy who gave his life for them. But maybe a few years later, or maybe a season, just a week, a couple weeks later, they get a phone call and it's the wife. It's the wife, you know, here's the boys and here's the parents, you know, the parents are just, the wife calls the parents of one of the kids, they live down the road from them, and she says, you know, um, I know we met briefly, but I've got my two and four year old and I got called out, would you be willing to come down and watch him? She goes, oh man, maybe I should, I don't know. This is silly, isn't it? And I love Mary because she challenges me. When Jesus sometimes just kind of nudges in my heart and says, you know, I would love for you just to, to maybe do this and it interrupts my day. Anybody like their day being interrupted? Not me. Anyway, uh, I don't have any time for that, God. What I love about Mary in these women that were with him. They're the kind of people you can relate to. They have blown it big. Their lives are not so neatly packaged. I, I love what one writer says. Most Christians hold Mary the Blessed Virgin in worshipful respect. But it is Mary Magdalene with whom we identify. We identify with failure, feeling trapped, 
and helpless. We know what it means to need forgiveness, to be proud, to be judgmental, to be self-righteous. We understand the allure of lust and greed and, and gossip because we live this. And if you have experienced the forgiveness and the love and the, and the work of someone in your life and they, they, they have touched your life, you then begin to understand what it means to say, I'm, I'm just compelled because I'm so grateful. I don't know where that applies to you, maybe. I don't know what God, through the Holy Spirit, might be kind of just tapping on your heart, saying, you know, really love for you to kind of do this. And, and maybe even saying, ah, and you're, or, or, you're, or you've been serving in such a way that it's duty. It may be just one of those kind of, i got to get back to the reality of that relationship and love. Because he loved you much. You give much, you serve much. Out of a thankful heart, you long to work with Jesus. And then you follow through the thick and thin. Mary Magdalene loved Jesus in life and in death. Think about that. In love, in life, and in death. That's not true of all the disciples. Unlike the other disciples, when the going got tough, what did they do? Well, Mary stuck it out. And devoted people were like that. Mary's mentioned, as I said, 14 times in the gospel. Eight of the 14 instances that she is mentioned, Mary is named in connection with other women, and she's always mentioned first. As a leader, she was not just a leader. Guess what? She was committed to community. So part of gratefulness is what we do here on Sunday morning. We come in and we worship. We say, God, I'm going to give you some of our time because I want to just reconnect with you. I want to pause during a busy week and just say, God, I thank you for this week. I love you. I recognize this is important. It's not that I have to do it to gain your approval and acceptance. It's because I want to do it. I want to love you. So we talk about worship, but you know, there's something else in here. There's community. We're going to talk a lot about this this fall. Mary was in community with others. There's something that is essential to your spiritual life to be connected with some other people where they know you and they love you and they can support you. So in life and in death, Mary supported him. And who was she with when she was with those others who were in thick and thin supporting? She was in community. She wasn't even doing that alone. Yet five instances, Mary is mentioned alone. And they're always in connection with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene is forever faithful to Jesus. She was among the last at the cross to witness Christ's death. She followed Joseph of Arimathea to see where Jesus' body would be laid. And she... they. They kind of hung back. They hung back at the cross to all the mocking and all the people left. And they were, you know, there was a crowd of the, the Pharisees and others who were up there just making fun. And then they moved away when I think it got dark. I think when the darkness came, they go, whoa, let's get out of here. And then Mary, and they moved up close. And then we see his body taken down, Joseph Arimathea, who was a very prominent person in the consul, which means he was a part of the Sanhedrin. They kind of stood back. They didn't really know fully about Joseph Arimathea, so they, again, from the back, they watch where they lay him, and they, they stay there until he goes, and he's given some spices. And they're looking at it, and now they get up close, and they know exactly where their, this, this tomb is, and 
And they go back that night because the sun has come down and they come back thinking we will come at the break of dawn with some spices. We love him so much. We are so committed to him, even though it's just his body. And they come early in the morning and they come there and, and Mary is the first to visit the tomb. Mary Magdalene was devoted, come rain or shine. When others deserted Jesus, Mary remained loyal. She was no fair weather fan. I like that we're no fair weather fan, that idea. As some of you know, a few of you know I'm a Cub fan, right? And every once in a while I get this idea, well, as you're a Cub fan, did you kind of jump on the bandwagon in 2016? I'm going, are you kidding me? I was a Cub fan because my dad grew up blocks from Wrigley Field. He used to help sell crates in, during World around the 50s and stuff. He was, sold these crates. And, and then he also, um, orange crates that they would use in the bleachers. And, and then as a kid, I remember going there. So, I mean, I had this long history of suffering. Um, <laughs> and I read this book on the Cubs called The Story of the Curse. And it'll fit in. I'll, I'll make a tie, okay? Rich Cohen. And I, I thought it was really funny because he explains well the ethos of a devoted North Sider and the ethos of the Cub team. And, and it was in 2016, the, the National League Championship Series game against the Dodgers. And I actually got to go to one of those thanks to my small group who sent me. That's one of the privileges being in community. Anyway, <clears throat> the Cubs are ahead 3-1. to one. It's the eighth inning. And as Rich Cohen writes, every person who's a Cub fan can, can relate to this. All true Cub fans know this is the witching hour, the time when everything goes south, when a mundane grounder slips through Leon Durham's legs, when Steve Bartman, the fan, seated on the left field, goes for the foul ball. And I remember that game. I remember that eighth inning. I remember the Dodgers had loaded the bases. And the closer, guy who, his name is Chapman, he throws 104 to 105 miles an hour. That when you're standing up this far away from where this ball is, you can hear it whistle. They're crazy people, these people who do this. Compelled by whatever, I don't know. And so he's up there. He strikes out the first two batters. And, and I'm going, God, we got this. My hope begins to mount. And then third guy gets up and hits the ball in the gap. And they tie the game with two runs. And here's what Rich Cohen writes, and I think this is so true. Every diehard fan can relate to this. The game was tied, but that's not how it felt to me. It felt as if we were a dozen runs behind and the cause was hopelessly lost. What can I say? It's the nature of my condition, the disease incubated by 40 summers at Wrigley Field. I'm a Cubs fan. I get to the park expecting to lose, curious only how it will happen. (laughs) But the fans in the upper deck that night, especially under 30, didn't seem downcast or forlorn. In fact, more than a few seemed confident and happy, and they began to chant first just a few, then thousands. And I couldn't make it out at first, and then I began to hear it. It is, we don't quit. We don't quit. We don't quit. And just get louder. And he, and he said, I, I turned to the sports writer next to me, and I said, who are they talking about? <laughs> he said, the Cubs. The Cubs, I, I questioned again. Yes, the Cubs, he said again. You mean to tell me they're saying the Cubs don't quit? Yes, he said firmly and a bit annoyed. And I laughed. Those fools, I said to myself, do they know nothing of history? We do quit. That's who we are. We're a team that has not won a championship in 108 years. 
We're often eliminated from the playoffs by late August. We always find a way to not get it done. Wobegon, befuddled, bewildered, were the Cubs. And I thank God Mary Magdalene wasn't a Cub. There was no quit in her. She was devastated by the death of Christ, but yet devoted to him even in the bad times. She loved him in life and she loved him in death. Think about it right now for yourself. Isn't it easy to follow when things are good? You know, when, when, when the weather is fair, it's easy to sing praise to God when you're bursting with joy. You came in this morning and you heard maybe this news and you're, you maybe had a great week at work or whatever it is. It's easy to be happy when things are happening. But being faithful... It's tough. Being faithful is no big deal when you feel the warmth of affirmation, the tenderness of loving touch, the accomplishment of record-breaking goals, the pleasure of victory. But when, and, and, and when you hit those dry spells, when things aren't going the way you want them to go, do you give up and get discouraged? That's exactly what your enemy wants you to do. Forget the marriage. This friendship is too difficult. The goal that was set, I'm not going to reach it. The high calling. Just go through the motions. Who really cares? Just show up. Look for a way out. Look for an excuse. Quit. And I love Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus, it says, then told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So some of you, God right now is saying, I believe he's saying to you, keep praying. told him a parable, the judge who could care less about God and other people. He told him about this judge who only cared about himself. He told about this widow who had only one thing on her mind, and one of them was this, I will tire this guy out with my presence. Don't quit. And the last is you will be greatly rewarded. Last to leave, first to see Jesus. That in itself was a great reward. The apostle of the apostles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great 18th century preacher, said, Mary, Mary the demoniac is the first to see Jesus and the first to preach to the preachers. So devoted was Mary Magdalene that wherever Jesus was, there she was as well. At the cross, at the burial, at the empty tomb, the others run off. But Mary Magdalene lingers. She looks in. She's concerned about where the body is. And John tells us that now Mary stood out the tomb crying outside it. As she wept, she bent over, looked into the tomb, and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. And one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. There's all kinds of explanations. I won't go into that. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, 
It's really something the way you can say a name, right? The way you say a name means so much. So, like, um, when I was growing up, Kevin David Meyer, I got that. Or maybe you go into a restaurant, you don't know the person very well, and they go, Kevin, uh, right? Or uh, my wife, oh, Kevin, you're the greatest. Anyway, no, uh. <laughs> You can have a dream. No. <laughs> Jesus says, Mary. That same voice she heard touches so deeply within her when she remembers the day that she heard his voice and the light broke into her life and into her soul and she began to understand here's the greatest reward of all she understood at that moment when Jesus first reached out to her came to her, set her free this same Jesus still loves her is still with her, not even death nor hell, nor Rome, nor anything could separate her from this voice from this love, from Jesus himself and the greatest reward that you can think about ever is to know it's not about your devotion, you're going to mess it up, we're all going to mess it up you're going to walk out of here and you're probably going to get angry maybe in the parking lot but it isn't your devotion that matters, although it's so important to, com- to move into co- that, that sense of gratefulness, no matter how you're labeled, and to recognize that you're going to say, God, I want to be with you in thick and thin, and you may deny him like Peter, and you may have all that stuff going on, but the greatest thing that Peter found, that Mary found, is that his devotion is greater to you than yours is to him. So just continue to follow him and to walk with him. I just want to close. Um, I'm going to ask the team come forward. On Friday morning, Grace and I had breakfast with a couple who um, have been married 53 years. And I thought that was really cool. And I was really touched as they shared their stories. And it just kind of touched my heart. And I was probably somewhat touched because I was thinking about devotion. And I go, it's rare. Isn't it rare to see someone married 50 years? For all kinds of reasons. You know, death can occur, other things can occur, divorce can occur. But that's just a cool thing. And I thought, you know what I'd love to do? I'll do it now. It came to my head. If you've been married 40 years, please stand. Come on, come on, come on. Over 40 years. Let's say over 40 years. Okay. Raise, Raise your hand if it's been easy. What? You can be seated. The reason I say this, folks, is that kind of devotion that you get when you understand how devoted God is to you, you begin to give that to to him and to others as well. There's something incredibly sweet about being in relationship for a long time. And for every person, it begins with the first step. And you may be in this place today and never said, yes, Jesus, I'm committed to you. I'm devoted to you. I accept your forgiveness. And all it is is the first step where you say, Jesus, I, I receive your forgiveness and I invite you to come into my life. I want you to, to, to think about that for just a moment. And I'm going to pray in just a second. For others of you, you're in a place in a marriage. 
I don't, it could be something going on in your own personal life. And, and you've taken those first steps. You've taken maybe 13, 14, 15 years of steps. And God is saying to you right now, don't give up. If you haven't sought counseling, find someone. If you're not in a group where others are supporting you, get into that. I've had a couple different younger guys just in the last month or two come to me and say, you know, I was in a group where I was meeting with guys. I need this badly. If you're not meeting with some people over a period of time, you will not experience the sweetness of devotion. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. I don't know if your first step to walk with Jesus, invite him in your life, or if you're in this place where you're, you've taken steps and God is saying, I want you to keep stepping, even though you're in that thin time where everything seems to be dry and apart. It may be in your relationship with Jesus where he's calling you back to just be faithful. He's committed to you. He's calling your name right now. He's calling your name. I, I, I know, in the spirit of God, you, he's calling your name. Just open your heart and invite him into your heart and life. And let him revive you and bring about the joy that will come. It may not be here right today, but it will come. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.